Section 16 of The Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 4, Chapter 2, Elizabeth's Court and Ministers. The wisdom of Elizabeth was shown in nothing so strongly as in her sagacity in the choice of ministers and her power of using men for her own purposes. The name most closely connected with Elizabeth's government is that of William Cecil, Lord Burley. First as secretary, afterwards as Lord Treasurer, he was a member of the council and always exercised the chief influence on the affairs of state. In those days, the sovereign was his own prime minister, and his confidential advisers were chosen at his own will. Throughout the whole of Elizabeth's reign, Burley continued to be her chief minister. His advice was not always followed by the Queen, and he had many opponents who never ceased to intrigue against him, but he was the man who did most in moulding Elizabeth's policy, and he retained the Queen's favour till his death. William Cecil was born in 1520 and began a political career under Henry VIII. Under Edward VI, he was made secretary through the patronage of the Duke of Somerset. He lost his place when his patron fell, but regained court favor by drawing the articles of impeachment against him. He was restored to office in 1550, and contrived to keep himself so far free from any connection with Northumberland's plot that he received from Mary a general pardon. He lost his office as secretary, but lived in peace, and conformed to the Catholic religion. He attached himself secretly and cautiously to the Princess Elizabeth, and gave her wise counsels to help her in the difficult position in which she was placed. When Elizabeth came to the throne, she at once marked her sense of Cecil's merit by appointing him a member of her council. This judgment, she said to him, I have of you, that you will not be corrupted with any gift, and that you will be faithful to the state, and that without respect of my private will you will give me that counsel that you think best. Cecil was not heroic, nor had he any elevation of character, but his wary, cautious, compromising, sensible character commanded Elizabeth's admiration, because it coincided so well with her own. Elizabeth was partly conscious that her own caprices or alarms or fancies occasionally impelled her to acts of folly against her better judgment. Cecil's calm and deliberate wisdom seemed to her to be the expression of her own higher self. She treated him often as men treat their conscience when it reminds them of unpleasant truths. She browbeat him and abused him and contradicted him. She overwhelmed him with reproaches, so that he often left her presence in tears. But she always thought over his advice, and often after a struggle, allowed it to prevail over her own inclinations. She did not entirely adopt Burley's policy, which was in favor of open opposition to Spain and earnest support to the Protestant cause in Europe. Elizabeth was more cautious in this than her cautious minister. She never forgot that her counselors were, after all, the heads of parties, with their own interests to serve, while to her belonged the care of the interests of her kingdom as a whole. It could not be but that Burley should wish to separate England from the Catholic powers, 
and make the succession of Mary of Scotland impossible, for Mary's succession would certainly mean his own ruin. Elizabeth was not so clear about the question of the succession, and she knew that the fear of Mary was the strongest bond to attach her ministers loyally to herself. Cecil's chief ally was his friend and brother-in-law, Sir Nicholas Bacon, the Lord Keeper, who by his second wife was father of the illustrious Francis Bacon. More serious and thoughtful than Cecil, he contributed steadfastness and dignity to his friend's shifty policy. He was a plain man, says his son Francis, direct and constant, without all finesse and doubleness, and one that was of a mind that a man should rest upon the soundness and strength of his own courses, and not upon practice to circumvent others. His motto, Mediocria firma, showed his sound common sense. When Elizabeth once remarked that his house was too small for him, no, madam, he answered, but you have made me too big for my house. He was a man of literary tastes and of refined mind. In the garden of his house at Gorhambury was built a room dedicated to the seven sciences. Its walls were adorned with an allegorical figure of each science, surrounded by portraits of her most eminent followers. We may take Cecil and Bacon as the chief representatives of the statesmen who clustered round Elizabeth and were recommended to their mistress by their wisdom and ability. But Elizabeth's political advisers found their difficulties greatly increased by the power of favorites who were merely courtiers and owed their influence with the queen to their personal qualities rather than their political wisdom. Elizabeth was fond of magnificence and display. She never appeared in public without a splendid band of followers. Her body of gentlemen pensioners contained all the young men of the noblest families in England. Sir John Hollis says that he did not know among the number a worse man than himself, and he was possessor of an estate worth £4,000 a year. The nobles of England flocked to Elizabeth's court and were proud to be in attendance upon her. Besides her love of display, she was also glad to strengthen her own position by the personal tie which thus grew up between the nobility and herself. Thus her courtiers necessarily had great influence with the queen, and her favorites from time to time had great political power. The fact that the queen was unmarried tinged all their relations toward her with a dash of gallantry. There was in those days no conventional bar to the marriage of an English queen with an English noble. The leading favorite approached Elizabeth with a mixture of a lover's familiarity and a subject's obedience. Elizabeth's personal feelings were strong. From political motives, she refused to marry, but she keenly felt the loneliness of her position and never ceased to long for intense personal attachment. She demanded of her favorites that they should devote themselves to her, as she had devoted herself to her conception of England's interest. Their marriages she regarded as so many insults to herself. Giving her affections as a woman, she imposed restrictions as a queen, and was continually discovering with grief and anger that her favorites only behaved as lovers in her presence, and gave to her as queen the devotion which she longed for as a woman. The first of these favorites who occupied a chief place in the queen's affections until his death in 1588 was Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. He was the son of John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, 
and is said to have been born on the same day and the same hour as Elizabeth. Recommended by his fine personal appearance and elegant manners, he rose at once in her favor. He was bold, ambitious, and intriguing, but his policy was directed only by self-interest, and the Queen's partiality for him gave a weight to his counsels which they did not deserve. He was the great opponent of Cecil, for he regarded Cecil as an obstacle to his entire power over the Queen. It is certain that Elizabeth would gladly have married him, if she could have done so with prudence or even with safety. Leicester put himself at the head of the Puritan party, mainly as a means of political power against Cecil. He was a man destitute of religious principles and a notorious profligate. He was unpopular owing to his arrogance, and the blackest stories were told and believed against him. He was popularly believed to have rid himself of his first wife, Amy Robsart, at the time when there was most probability of his marriage with the Queen. In a book called Leicester's Commonwealth, supposed to have been written by the Jesuit Parsons, he is accused of every kind of murder and assassination. Certainly many of his enemies died most opportunely for his plans. So great was his influence with the Queen that she forgave him even his second marriage with the Countess of Essex in 1578. In her rage, she at first threatened to imprison him in the Tower and was with difficulty restrained from making this public display of her feelings. Yet he had become so necessary to her that he was soon restored to favor. Still, Leicester's power was by no means unlimited. The Queen's proud spirit could not brook the idea of dependence on any man. When it came to the point, Elizabeth would be roused and act for herself. One day an usher refused admittance to the Queen's presence to a follower of Leicester's, who had no privilege of admission. Leicester threatened the usher with dismissal, whereupon the man stepped before him and, kneeling before the Queen, told her the story, and asked whether Leicester were king or Her Majesty Queen. My lord, she exclaimed, I have wished you well, but my favor is not so locked up for you that others shall not partake thereof, for I have many servants to whom I have and will at my pleasure bequeath my favor, and likewise resume the same, and if you think to rule here, I will take a course to see you forthcoming. I will have here but one mistress and no master." These words, adds Naughton, so quelled my lord of Leicester that his feigned humility was long after one of his best virtues. Leicester was not the only courtier who owed his position solely to the royal favor. Christopher Hatton, a young student of the Inns of Court, attracted the Queen's attention by his elegant dancing at a mask. He left the study of law and became a courtier. In due time he was rewarded by no less an office than that of Lord Chancellor. The lawyers were disgusted, but Hatton was a prudent and an upright man. He used the assistance of learned assessors in the discharge of his legal duties and filled his high office with credit. He was the only one of the Queen's favorites who died unmarried, but the Queen's conduct to him was capricious. She became tired of him, and he is said to have died of chagrin. Thus Elizabeth's court was a scene of wild adventure. Every young man who could gain admission there might hope to win the Queen's attention and secure his own fortunes. 
every kind of merit might hope for recognition from a sovereign who could equally appreciate literature, bravery, and elegant accomplishments. The Queen's favour, however, had not only to be won, but also to be maintained against all rivals. The adventurous spirit which animated English sailors to perilous voyages in the New World found occupation at home in more nimble feats of dexterity. In climbing the steep ascent to royal favour, and defending the passes to that perilous height. Spencer describes the courtier's position with vigorous bitterness of feeling. For little knowest thou that hast not tried what hell it is in suing long to bide, to lose good days that might be better spent, to waste long nights in pensive discontent, to speed to-day to be put back to-morrow, to feed on hope, to pine with fear and sorrow to fret thy soul with crosses and with cares, to eat thy heart through comfortless despairs, to fawn, to crouch, to wait, to ride, to run, to spend, to give, to want, to be undone. Elizabeth was fond of making magnificent public appearances, surrounded by the ladies and gentlemen of her court in their most splendid attire. Sometimes she went on horseback, sometimes borne in a litter on the shoulders of her chiefest nobles. But most often did she go along the only broad highway of London, the royal barge, with its rich drapery, heading a long procession of attendant boats on the Thames. Sometimes she went with curious pomp. A thousand men in harness with shirts of mail and corslets of morris pikes, and ten great pieces carried through the city, with drums and trumpets sounding, and two morris dancings, and in a cart, two white bears. Elizabeth thoroughly enjoyed the pleasures of royalty, and realized them to the full in her royal progresses. During her reign she visited from time to time her nobles, and the chief cities of her realm. Everywhere her presence was a cause for entertainments and rejoicings. Everywhere she could enjoy the gratification of her vanity, in the applause which her affability won, or in the admiration which her dignity inspired. Moreover, her thrifty mind enjoyed magnificence doubly when she did not have to pay for it. A courtier in disgrace knew that there was no better way back to favor than to solicit the costly honor of a royal visit, and Elizabeth was always ready to receive a present from the faithful burgesses whose city she condescended to visit. Sometimes her greed overcame her decorum. When she visited Norwich, the mayor, after a tedious Latin oration, handed her a silver cup full of gold pieces, saying, Sunt hic centum librae puriauri. Here are a hundred pounds of pure gold. The queen eagerly took off the cover and looked inside, then with a pleased face handed it to one of her servants, saying, Look to it, there is a hundred pound. We possess full accounts of many of these royal entertainments, from which much is to be learned about the taste and manners of the time. Most notable amongst them are the princely pleasures of Kenilworth, where in 1575 the Earl of Leicester entertained the Queen for nearly three weeks with a daily succession of shows and banquets. The Queen was met some distance off by her host with a brilliant cavalcade. On nearing the castle, a giant porter armed with a club refused admittance to all till he saw the Queen, when throwing away his club he prostrated himself at her feet and gave up to her his keys. As she entered the castle, 
a floating island on the moat approached the bridge over which he was passing, and a lady who had been in captivity since the days of King Arthur commemorated in a long poem her happy deliverance through the terror of Elizabeth's name. The bridge itself was ornamented with posts, on each of which were seen the offerings to one of the heathen gods. Birds, fishes, fruits, musical instruments, and armor all were hung in their order as symbolical gifts to the queen. When the bridge was passed at the entrance of the inner court, a poet appeared, who recited a long Latin poem explaining to the queen the meaning of all that she had seen. This reception may serve as a sample of the varied amusement which filled up the rest of the queen's visit. Every day had its own entertainment. Now there was a water party, when Arian on his dolphin drew near and sung the praises of the queen, accompanied by an entire orchestra who were stowed away inside the monstrous fish. Now there was a ride in the woods where Ombre Salvaggio, the wild man of the woods, overcome by the queen's dignity and grace, vowed henceforth to lay aside his savagery and live in her service. Echo, too, in answer to appropriate questions, expressed her delight at Elizabeth's presence. Some days were given up to the chase, to hawking and to bear-baiting. There were fireworks and tumbling feats when other amusements flagged. Nor were the sports of the common people disregarded. One day the queen was entertained by a band of rustics, who represented a country wedding, and afterwards displayed their skill in tilting at the quintain. Another day the men of Coventry fought their mimic tournament, according to a yearly custom, in commemoration of a great victory over the Danes. Nor did the burgesses of the towns which Elizabeth visited fall short of the nobles and the honors which they paid her. At Norwich, Mercury attired in blue satin lined with cloth of gold, with wings on his hat and on his heels, descended from a magnificent carriage at the queen's door, and invited her to go and see the revels. There was an elaborate mask representing Venus and Cupid, wantonness and riot, who after many gambles were put to flight by chastity and her train. The queen's visits to the two universities were also very characteristic. At Cambridge, the public orator on his knees for more than half an hour commemorated the queen's virtues. At first she counterfeited indignation, shook her head, and bit her fingers, exclaiming, Non es veritas et utinam. It is not the truth. I would that it were. When he praised virginity, she called out, God's blessing of thy heart there continue. On Sunday she heard a Latin sermon in the morning, and in the evening saw a representation of the Aulularia of Plautus in the university church. As yet the wave of Puritanism had not swept over England and stamped a rigid Sabbatarianism on the popular mind. She visited all the colleges in turn, hearing at each a Latin oration, and receiving amongst other presents a splendidly bound volume full of Latin and Greek verses composed in her honor. She was besought to address the university in Latin, and after a great show of reluctance, with many expressions of diffidence and pleadings of her own want of preparation, she delivered an elaborately prepared and turgid Latin speech, in which she held out hopes of imitating her predecessors by founding some new building in the university. Perhaps her promise deceived no one. Elizabeth's thrift prevented her from leaving any architectural monument of her taste or munificence. 
At Oxford there was a similar tedious flow of orations, and brains were racked to patch together a still larger collection of copies of verses than had been made at Cambridge. The Queen was so far advanced in erudition that after some show of bashfulness she addressed the university in Greek. Better far than her speeches was her ready remark to the Vice-Chancellor, Dr. Humphreys, a distinguished Puritan who opposed the views of the Queen and Archbishop Parker, when he advanced in cap and gown at the head of an academic procession. The Queen, as she gave him her hand, said with a smile, "'That loose gown, doctor, becomes you mighty well. I wonder your notions should be so narrow.' It was by saying such as these that the Queen won the hearts of the people, who can always appreciate keen, homely wit and readiness of speech. End of section 16